They're over there. They're very nice. Hashtag grace pen. That's the way it works. So, um, but um, those of you that aren't aware, starting, uh, I think we started last Sunday, or maybe it was Christmas Eve we started. We are now streaming on YouTube and Facebook Live. So if you either one of those platforms, you can stream live and, and catch it later if you want as well. That's kind of what we got going on on the, on the, uh, the online side. We continue to expand the virtual aspect of our ministries. Um, those continue to grow each week. So um, <clears throat> we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is week number 59. Uh, I've titled this uh, message, God in the Temple, as we continue to go through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's been some of the most challenging preaching in my career, actually. Uh, it's, it's been very uh, not challenging as in, like, you know, I don't want to preach it. It's challenging as in, man, I, I have to do justice to what Jesus is saying. It's not, I mean, preaching through Paul is one thing, but these are actually the words of Jesus, so you've got to be really careful, you know. So, um, but just a couple of questions in the, in the form of introduction. If you had to pick... What would you say is the most important thing, the important doctrine, the most important theology that Jesus taught? I mean, don't answer out loud, but just think in your head, well, if I had to, one thing, this would be the most important. Well, the answer to that is, and if you base it on how often he taught this particular doctrine, this particular theology, it would be his deity. He taught that he was God more than he taught anything else. And since Jesus taught this particular concept of him being God more than anything, it became the core tenet of the church in the first century. And as a matter of fact, since it was the most important thing that Jesus taught, the thing he spent as much as, more time on stressing than anything else, it's not unusual that within the first year it was the first doctrine to come under attack in the first century was his deity. In less than a year, people who claim to follow Jesus are saying, well, he wasn't really God. He didn't really mean that. <clears throat> Today, modern day, most reasonable people, even if they're not necessarily Christians or believe in God, most reasonable people understand and recognize, historically speaking, they affirm that Jesus existed. And they also, for the most part, can affirm the teachings of Jesus on a broad sense, like, for example, what Jesus taught on the poor, the widows, the sick, our responsibilities in society to those types of things. Some people call these things social justice. Racism, Jesus taught about that. There's a lot of things that, that many people would embrace. Politicians actually often refer to these teachings of Jesus, and they even might even say, we know that Jesus said, I've heard Republicans do it, I've heard Democrats do it, I've heard Libertarians do it. They refer to them as a tool to appear authoritative on a moral aspect of their public policy that they embrace. Non-believers often use the teachings of Jesus as a cudgel against Christians who are, in many respects, hypocritical sometimes in how we operate. Who are you to judge? I hear that one a lot. Feed the poor. Religious hypocrisy. So those teachings of Jesus are embraced and used sort of as a, as a whip some way, in some ways. People often quote Jesus to manipulate people's emotions, inspire actions, condemn others, 
and evaluate or elevate their own personal ethical standing. But Jesus' claim of being God, this is the one that is not so easily publicly embraced. As a matter of fact, many even mock it. Most would never embrace his claim of being creator of the universe, God the Father. That's when Jesus and his followers become a little bit too radical, a little bit too superstitious, and a little bit too divisive. See, admiring the teachings of Jesus while rejecting or ignoring the one he taught more than any of them, I see that as a problem. And that's what the passage today is about in Mark chapter 12, verse 34 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, this is still Confrontation Wednesday. This has been going on for hours. He's just dispatched of the Pharisees. He's dispatched of the Sadducees. He's dispatched of the scribes from teachings on divorce to teachings on the resurrection to teachings on what's the greatest commandment. All these things he continues to make them look silly. And Jesus taught in the temple. And he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he David's son? And the great throng, it's in that interesting phrase, is the great throng heard him gladly. What about the history of this passage? What about man? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I've entitled this passage or this portion of the sermon, Scribes and the Christ. First of all, I want you to see there's definitely a white flag. Um, I'm missing the, it's not clicking together, Kevin, so you could advance that for me. There is definitely a white flag at this point. The religious have tried everything to destroy Jesus politically and socially by trying to publicly match wits with him. Of course, they have failed miserably at every turn, and in fact, their efforts to destroy Jesus have actually elevated Jesus in the eyes of the people. His standing's gotten even greater, and in the process, they've also destroyed their own credibility. Now, none of them want to challenge Jesus publicly anymore. But it's too late. The damage has been done. It was clear to everyone who the real authority of Scripture is, who the real authority in the temple is, and it's not them anymore. Their whole corrupt system, their whole corrupt religious system of manipulation and grifting has been exposed and they will never recover from it. In fact, in just 60 to 65 short years after this incident right here, this day, Confrontation Wednesday, the discredited temple system would be wiped out, destroyed, and never ever to return as part of God's plan. Then we see the son of David. So when they call Jesus Christ, it means the anointed one. It means Chosen, and it's interchangeable with the, with the title of Messiah. They would see the Christ and Messiah as the same person. And the scribes were famous for teaching that Messiah was a son of David, meaning he was an heir to the physical earthly throne of David, a blood descendant of David. And they taught the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, was to be the greatest political leader and military leader ever that Israel has experienced He would be anointed with power from God, and he would lead Israel's resurgence. It's one of the reasons why they would reject the idea of John the Baptist as Messiah, even though Jesus said there was none greater than John the Baptist. There's no way JTB, living in the wilderness, eating giant grasshoppers and wearing camel skins, is Messiah. No way. 
They didn't understand, of course, that Messiah was not just some great man, but also he was to be fully God in human form. This is the controversial teaching of Jesus. In their minds, they weren't waiting for Emmanuel, which we call God with us, and we just celebrated Christmas. They were waiting for the Christ, the anointed one, the leader. And Jesus' constant, and listen carefully, Jesus' constant claim of being God was a real trigger for them. Why? Well, there are two obvious reasons why it was a trigger. Number one, it meant they weren't the experts anymore about their messianic teachings for generations. Well, that can't be right. Even though it was all through the gospel of Moses that we talked about last week, and the Psalms, and the prophets, it never occurred to them that Messiah could be God himself. See, they never occurred to them that Messiah was a savior of, now get this subtle difference, it's not subtle actually, it's kind of big, they couldn't grasp the fact that Messiah was a savior of individuals, not a nation. And the second reason it would trigger them is it meant that their reign as the authority spiritually on Jewish matters and all the power and the glory and the prestige that comes with it was coming to an abrupt end. Especially with how Jesus made repeated indictments about their hypocrisy, their lack of knowledge, and their false teaching. These are the two core elements of the rivalry between Jesus and and this whole Sanhedrin. And because of this, they became Jesus haters. See, the religious, they hated Jesus for exposing their flawed theology, exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their rampant corruption in the temple. They hated how people followed him at their expense of their own popularity and prestige, But more than all of that, there was plenty of reasons for them to hate Jesus. But more than all of that, they hated him for this specific reason, for his claim of being God, claiming authority over them. As a matter of fact, there were incidences in the gospel where Jesus said before Abraham was, I have been, what does the scripture say they did? They stoned him, or they tried to stone him, and he escaped unharmed. I and the Father are one, he said several times. I work, and my Father works. Before Abraham was, I am. Nothing made him more hated than his continuous, ridiculous claims of being God. And if you think about it, it's one of the things where Jesus is hated that he makes him hated today. Let me say this again for those of you that might have been drifting. Nothing made them hate him more than his continuous claims of being God. This was at the core of their disdain for Jesus. So that's the history. Look at the spiritual. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I've entitled this section, My Lord, and you'll see why in just a minute. So Jesus goes on the offense here. Just because the Sanhedrin doesn't want to engage Jesus on a public you know, level anymore doesn't stop Jesus from continuing the debate. And instead of him fielding questions, he's now asking the questions. And with precision... Jesus teaches the crowd how the scribes for generations have had Messiah all wrong. Completely wrong. He asked the question, how can the Christ be the son of David when David calls Messiah his Lord? And he uses Psalm 110, which is very interesting. Psalm 110 is not some random psalm. It would be the most quoted psalm in all of Jewish culture. 
It's the most cited Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. Where David refers to two different lords. He refers to Yahweh and Adonai. As a matter of fact, it's a psalm that everyone labeled a messianic psalm. Even if they didn't believe that Messiah was God, they would say, Psalm 110.1 is a prophecy of Messiah that will come. God's going to make the enemies his footstool. Here's the passage in Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, the father speaking to his son, who calls David, who David calls, excuse me, my Lord, the Christ who is to come. We know this because it's two people, two separate names are used. The first one is Jehovah. Here's the Hebrew word. It got cut off a little bit, but the, just trust me, there's two more Hebrew letters in there, but there's the Hebrew font. Jehovah means self-existent or eternal one. That's one name. Jehovah, self-existent, eternal one, says to Adonai, which means sovereign controller, lord, master, and owner. So it says, Jehovah says to Adonai. My Jehovah says to my Adonai, sit here. Yes, Jesus was in the line of David in an earthly human sense, but he is also David's lord. My Jehovah says to my Adonai, sit here. Why would Jesus use the most quoted passage in the Old Testament in the temple on Confrontation Wednesday if you weren't trying to drive home a very important doctrine, a very important point? Jesus is teaching them from Psalm 110 that Messiah, the Christ, is far more than the scribes ever taught or dreamed he could be. A military leader or some king does not go far enough in giving Christ the glory he deserves. And you know what's fascinating about this? is This is inspired truth, and Jesus makes sure that we understand. Get this little nuance. The next part is so crucial. Jesus teaches in the temple. He said, David says this in the Holy Spirit. Why did David in the Holy Spirit say, My Jehovah... To my Adonai, Jesus says that David said this in the Holy Spirit, meaning that the words are intentional. They are inspired. David's words are inspired and authored by God himself. God is speaking truth through David. Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a very bold statement to quote the most quoted messianic psalm in all of Jewish culture in the temple. A bold statement pointing out the flawed messianic scribal teachings. All this after owning them on these three ridiculous arguments they tried to make. So he didn't just win the arguments. He says, you know why I beat you? Because I'm God. I know more than you. I created you. What's more astounding? Everyone heard this. It says the throngs heard it. And what Jesus is teaching, it makes perfect sense to them. So they intellectually grasp what Jesus is saying. Messiah, the Christ, would also be God himself. The Christ, the anointed one, was fully man and fully God. Later on, we get a bit of a preview of this at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll get to that one day. 
So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Clearly, those people embraced intellectually what Jesus was teaching about Messiah. But here's the problem. They did not embrace it spiritually. They did not embrace Jesus as Messiah. Sure, I'll get that, Jesus, you're right. Messiah is God. Well, we're waiting for Messiah when he's coming. It'll be God. It'll be really cool. Messiah has been right there in the temple for two full days, wreaking havoc on the establishment, displaying his authority in many ways. They embraced his teaching about the hypocrisy of the elites, the resurrection, his view of the Old Testament scripture, yet they didn't embrace all of who he claimed to be, who he really was. They embraced, get this now, church, they embraced the easy parts. Otherwise, their reaction would have been quite different, right? If Jewish people worshiping in the temple really thought that God was right there with them, Emmanuel, the response would have been, yeah, we get that. No, it's going to be something much different. The saddest part about this story, they left admirers of Jesus, but not worshipers or followers. All right, the personal section. What about us? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? I want to talk about embracing the whole Jesus. This was my Sunday sermon preview this week, and this one actually got a lot more um, controversial comments than I thought it should, but it, it got a lot. What's the point of admiring Jesus if you don't believe he's God? I thought it was just a simple, basic. Some people got really got angry at me. Hide, 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 hide. <laughs> All the comments, it was pretty wild. At one point, I said, maybe I should take it down. I called Daryl. Should I take it down? No. Okay, fine. We'll take it down. I want to talk about society's Jesus. See, the human side of Jesus is certainly a crucial component of Jesus as our Lord, okay? Jesus' humanity plays a crucial role in our salvation. It makes him our sympathetic Savior. It teaches us to be empathetic and sympathetic to those who are struggling with sin just as we are. He's a Savior who understands all our struggles, yet without succumbing to them. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is an important aspect of our Savior, the humanity of Jesus. He is sympathetic to our weaknesses, yet without any of those weaknesses himself. The only way this is possible is with a Messiah who is fully man, born as we are, our brother in the struggles of life. This is the part of what makes Jesus, I believe, so attractive to a seeking human heart, a hurting, wounded soul that is weary in this world. He's not an untouchable, unreachable God. He's a sympathetic Savior. Perhaps that's why many can easily, even those who don't follow Jesus, you can see why many would easily have affection for some of his teachings, right? On humanity, like the poor, social justice issues that Jesus clearly champions. But embracing only the social issues that Jesus taught makes him what I call society's Jesus. We see a lot of that today. 
Many non-Christian groups who embrace a society Jesus. Rabbis do it. Gandhi did it. Muhammad did it. Artists do it. Even presidents. Politicians in every democracy in the world strategically reference this more acceptable society Jesus in many ways. Latter-day Saint churches, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, all accept society Jesus. A great moral teacher, a great philosopher, a confirmed historical inspirational figure, a martyr for his cause. It's an easy, see if you can grasp this concept, it's an easy fractional Jesus. Avoiding his teachings that may be too dogmatic, that go too far, like that he is creator and God. You know, evangelical groups also run to society's Jesus, looking for ways to soft-pedal his harder teachings, making Jesus more marketable, more palatable, right? Like Jesus is a way, but not the way, as an example. Here's the problem. This fractional society Jesus is a powerless Jesus with no authority, and no ability to transform a sinful, broken heart. When we embrace a fractional society Jesus, stripped of his most important teaching, we reject the real Jesus. It leaves us as merely, just like those in the temple that day, the throng of people, it leaves us as admirers and not followers, not worshipers. I want to talk about Jesus, your Lord. So why did Jesus, and why am I, making such a big point of this deity issue today? Well, Jesus, just as he is our sympathetic Savior, in touch with our humanity and all the struggles that come with it, just as David said, he's not just that Jesus, he's also our Lord. Paul, by the way, who would have absolutely despised and hated, as a matter of fact, did despise and hate the teachings of Jesus about being God before Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. It says in Colossians 2.8, Paul says this to the church, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition. Doesn't that sound wild? according to the elemental spirits of the world, like a fake spirituality, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Boy, I wish you would be a little more clear, don't you? (laughs) And you have been filled in him. That's pretty wild, too. Who is the head of all rule and authority. See, Without a full embrace of this dominant theology Jesus taught, and it was the most dominant by far, maybe to a factor of two or three more than anything else. Without embracing of this dominant theology, the gospel of Jesus becomes a powerless message. It becomes nothing more, at best, than a motivational self-help message. At best, powerless to transform you. It's powerless to do that. And it's certainly going to be powerless to redeem you and certainly going to be powerless to resurrect you that we talked about last week. 
A true full embrace of Jesus as God should transform our worship. That's easy, right? It certainly should transform our scheduling. It should transform our giving. It should transform our prayer. It should transform how we approach the Word of God. Remember that crowd that gladly agreed? Yes, that's good, but didn't embrace Him? You know, I wonder sometimes how much we, quote-unquote, Christians are like that crowd. When we neglect or run in fear of or try to soft-pedal the most dominant teaching of our Lord. We are, in fact, when we do that, rejecting Him. Church, it is nothing or everything, period. And I would love, some of you maybe heard said it, well, Joe, that sounds a little bit, uh, you know, overboard, don't you think? You know, and I thought about it. I would love to give you a good quote to end today that I came up with. But I found out the more I worked on it, I was just plagiarizing someone else. <laughs> So here's my quote. It's really C.S. Lewis, but I'll take credit for it, okay? I don't normally do this. This is a quote that is three screens long, so just follow with me. People often say about him, it's talking about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool or you can shut him up for a, fuel, for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or, this is the choice you're making, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's a great quote that I came up with, right? See, there comes a point in every Christ follower's life where they recognize he's not just little baby Jesus. He's not just philosopher Jesus. He's not just political Jesus. He's not just moral teacher Jesus. He's not just social justice champion Jesus. He's Adonai. He is Jehovah. And at that moment, when you do more than just intellectually embrace that, but spiritually and emotionally and personally say, he's not just Lord, he's my Lord. That's when your values actually change. And it's really hard to say that Jesus is your Lord if he's not your number one priority in your relationships, in your giving, in your schedule, in your prayer, in your profession, in everything.
Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us the gift of faith that enables to make that choice that C.S. Lewis was talking about. Lord, help us recognize that accepting the teachings of Jesus while rejecting the one he's taught more than any other is not a spiritual awakening. It's a philosophical convenience. Lord, we don't want to reject anything about you. Work in our hearts and minds today to allow us to fall at your feet and to call you Lord and God and give us the courage to dispense with any, as C.S. Lewis said, patronizing nonsense. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of Mark is really good, isn't it? We're going to continue next week. We love all of you, especially those of you watching on Facebook and YouTube and those that are here. If you need anything this week, let us know. We got your back. Have a great week.